This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Ancient Chinese philosophy espouses the concept of yin and yang, meaning that two seemingly oppositional forces are in fact complementary. That is the best metaphor for the relationship between action-driven public policy and in-depth research and data collection. As governments everywhere are accused of austerity, there are squabbles about where to spend our limited public dollars. Action or research? When we focus on public policy dealing with the increasing numbers of Canadians who live with a disability, it becomes evident that we can do more to gather data about this population to support evidence-based policy approaches within government. Today we discuss the relationship between data collection and public policy dealing with vision care in Canada. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. My name is Jyothi Gupta. Today is day 2 of our 4-day coverage of the Canadian Vision 2020 summit that took place in Ottawa. Today on the show we'll hear a couple of interviews I did with two panelists from Vision 2020. We'll hear from Luna Bengio, the principal advisor to the Deputy Minister of the Office of Public Service Accessibility at the Treasury Board Secretariat. Luna was a panelist for the second panel of the day which focused on living with vision loss. But first, here is my interview with Stuart Morris, senior analyst for Statistics Canada. Stuart has worked on the Canadian Survey for Disability and was a panelist for the first panel which focused on vision research in Canada. Stuart, welcome to the Pulse. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. And I really do mean that. It's not just something I'm saying. I am actually giddy with anticipation to talk to the person behind the Canadian Survey on Disability. Tell us a little bit about your process in compiling that in 2017. What we do know is that um despite the fact that we've been collecting data for the past 35 years, what we see is that um how we define disability, mm-hmm. how it's being measured, as well as how is those technological advances impacting those experiences has changed over time so what you'll see is you'll see an evolution in the change in the different surveys that were carried out by Statistics Canada mm-hmm. so the canadian survey on disability um its first cycle started in 2012 and the most recent cycle is 2017 as you can probably guess from the way I'm talking about it the cycle occurs in five year increments mm-hmm. so the next one is 2022 now i think what a big plus right now and i think it's the one that most people are really looking forward to learning is that the 2017 and the 2022 will be the first time that we are now able to track changes over time mm-hmm. we were not able to do that in 2012 because there were changes in the methodology as well as the definition mm-hmm. but because we kept the baseline definition the same and we used the same selection process um we're now able to say that we can do the uh, 2017 and compare it with the 2022 And this is really exciting not least because the information that you gather you're really telling a story you're telling a story about entire populations and the changes within that population how does your research 
lend itself to evidence-based policy. So you're not just doing research for research's sake, but hopefully you're doing research for implementation's sake. Absolutely. So because I work in the federal government, really the purpose of doing this type of research is twofold. Uh, one is we want the information to get out there into the community for the people that it most impacts, the persons with disabilities. But I think equally important is that we can quantify what those experiences look like that can help inform policies and programs uh, held out by the provincial and federal government. The other thing, too, is that what we can do with the survey and the results from it is that we can quantify that to now say something about just how many people does this impact. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about things like requirements for specific types of aids and devices, we can actually attribute a specific number to what it looks like. Are you asking people who fill out the surveys whether they self-identify as living no, with a disability? No, no. Uh, I'm sorry, jump. that's actually an excellent point. So uh, so the first thing that we, we, we make very clear in the Canadian Survey on Disability is that persons do not actually self-identify mm. as having a disability. If you can think of the survey as consisting of a series of modules, mm -hmm. and each module covers a specific topic, mm -hmm. the very first module is what we call the disability screen of questions. Mm -hmm. These screen of questions are a series of questions that, based on the way the person answers them, allows us as analysts, as methodologists, to say whether or not that person has a disability. Mm -hmm. uh, we also, based on the pattern of their responses to those questions, can identify what type of disability you have, and then also, equally important, what the severity level of that disability. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when people come to us, they think, well, I'm just going to tell you I have a disability, and I'm going to tell you how bad it is. Mm -hmm. That's actually not how we do it. We're actually much more um, reasoned about it. Mm -hmm. And so we say, well, no, you don't tell us that. We will evaluate you based on your responses. Mm -hmm. And so that takes some of the bias out. Now, the other, the other implication is that sometimes we will get requests coming to us and saying, well, can you tell us how many people have autism, as an example? And so we can't do that. And the reason that we can't do that is that in all likelihood, we're going to underestimate the number of people who have specific conditions because you have to require the condition and you have to be limited. Mm -hmm. So you can see with that leads to an undercounting. Yes. So we're very careful to say that we can't provide you the official numbers for specific types of conditions. Mm -hmm. All we can do is provide you with specific numbers for specific types of disabilities. And let's talk disability by the numbers. Now, we don't need to get too much into the weeds here, but I would be so interested in some of your findings from 2017 about the incidence of disability in our population, uh, whether, you know, what you found were some of the trends emerging on the basis of age group, maybe gender, demographic spread, so much to go into, but so little time. That's a lot, that's a lot to cover. And uh, so I, I've, done, I, I've done quite a bit of research in the area, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, thinking through some of the things that I think would be most interesting. Um, obviously, let's start, let's start um, at the very high level, um, which is that because our survey covers persons aged 15 years and, and over, we don't actually cover anybody younger than that. Mm -hmm. So when we look at 15 and over, 22% of Canadians have some type of disability. So that's what we know across Canada. We also know that there are geographical differences 
And uh, so, for example, we know that um, in Quebec, uh, the rates tend to be the lowest for different disability types. Um, what we can say is that disabilities is more common than most people realize. The fact that we know that 22% of the population have some type of disability says that either you have a disability or you know somebody who has a disability. What we also know is that when we talk about persons with disabilities, very few have only one type. And I think that's a big reveal. So when we talk about persons with disabilities, oftentimes we're talking about persons who have multiple or co-occurring disabilities. So it's always one disability plus something else or plus two other types and so on. And that's a big reveal because I think people tend to think of it as the idea that, well, if somebody has a vision loss, the only thing I need to address in terms of, for example, um, making sure the environment is accessible is if I address the vision, mm-hmm. I've covered everything. When in actuality, we know that using vision as the example, because I just happened to present it earlier today, is that only 14% of persons with vision loss have only a seeing disability. Mm-hmm. The rest of them have more than that. Mm-hmm. What we, what we know is that when it comes to workplace accommodations, as, an, as, a, as another area of research that I've done recently, is that we can now quantify that um, there, actually, there is actually, a, based on the data that I've looked at, there is certainly a willingness to, of employers to provide support and accommodation, provided that the person with disability asked for it. Mm-hmm. And what, what I found is when I looked at persons who had one or more unmet needs for accommodations, what we were finding is more often than often the case was that the person didn't actually ask their supervisor or employer for that accommodation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big reveal. There's just one last question to ask you, and what I really want to ask you, because um, most statisticians or researchers will be the first ones to tell you that there are no doubt gaps in the research and gaps in the statistics, and you seem very excited about the prospect of being able to compare results in 2022, but looking to that next iteration of your survey, what can we expect that is brand new? Oh, certainly. I'd be happy to touch on that. So right now, um, we're in the process of doing um, content development. So obviously, as with any survey that has multiple cycles, uh, what we want to do is at the core, we want to keep most of the questions the same. And the reason you have to keep the questions the same is you need that standardization so that um, if something changes in the next cycle, it's not because the question changed, but because there was a real change. Mm-hmm. So, so we always have that caveat whenever we look at making any addition to, this, to the next cycle. However, um, I can say quite confidently um, that in the next one, um, because the um, Accessibility Act has become a focal point um, in Canada, um, that we will most certainly be adding um, additional content and questions on accessibility because we need to start to measure um, what's happening with that over time as more and more um, accommodations are being provided. So I can certainly say that, although I can't talk about the specific questions that will be added, we definitely will be having new content that will cover that area as well. 
That is very interesting to hear because it was honestly not something I'd even thought about. Stuart, thank you for such a riveting conversation. I was glued to my seat. Thank you very much for being on The Pulse. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Stuart Morris, Senior Analyst for Statistics Canada. Stuart has worked on the Canadian Survey on Disability and was a panelist for the first panel that focused on the state of vision research in Canada. Luna Bengio is our next guest. I had a chance to sit down and talk to Luna about some of her perspectives, both as a mother and grandmother living with vision loss, but given her long career as a public servant. Luna is a principal advisor to the Deputy Minister for the Office of Public Service Accessibility at the Treasury Board Secretariat. Luna was a panelist for the second panel of the day, which focused on living with vision loss. Luna, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you. So Luna, this morning when I was listening to the Deputy Minister, she referred to you as her guiding star. That's high praise coming from your employer and from the Deputy Minister. What is your role within government? Um, First of all, let me say she is a a wonderful leader. Um, This is my second opportunity working with her in a different capacity So it's wonderful to be part of that team. So what is my role? The Office of Public Service Accessibility was created to help federal government departments prepare for the implementation of the Accessible Canada Act. What that means is we were charged with the development of a roadmap that lists a series of actions in those those five areas uh, that our deputy talked about. So employment, built environment, uh, information and communications technology, equipping public servants to uh, deliver um, accessible programs and services, and last but not least, creating that culture of inclusion and accessibility within the federal public service. More specifically, what I work on. So I provide strategic advice. That means, uh, as I say very plainly, I stick my nose into everything (laughs) and I have opinions about things. Uh, Inspired a lot by my work experience, but also by my lived experience as a person having uh, lived with a disability all her life. Secondly, I am the lead for the development of the Government of Canada Workplace Accessibility Passport that uh, our deputy mentioned this morning. This is a tool to help employees with disabilities have access to the workplace accommodations that they need. I also uh, lead a lot of our work on information and communications technology. So uh, working with the people who are responsible uh, for these areas within government, do the right thing, do what they need to do. So our team doesn't do everything around accessibility. Our role is to ensure that those who have the responsibilities do what they need to do and build in accessibility from the start. So Luna, it sounds like this is a really exciting chapter in your professional life and an interesting moment for people with disabilities in Canada. We'll revisit some of the things that you brought up, but take us back to the beginning of your career because you talked about having a three-decade career in public service. Why was that the way in which you wanted to make a difference? And when did you realize that you wanted to give back to the federal public service? So um, how this all started um, was I had an opportunity to go and join the federal public service at a time. And it's amazing that, you know, 30 years later, we're still 
a bit talking about the same things we were talking about back then. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the federal public service decided that it wanted to implement programs to support, it was at the time, it was about full participation of people with disabilities. Amazing that it's still about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had the, the, the opportunity to join, uh, to be hired as part of a group of people who were working on a, a grants and contributions program supporting community development organizations of people with disabilities. That's where I started. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was great, and I did that for a few years until I decided, hey, I have to do something different. Mm -hmm. I can't live with a disability and work in the disability area all the time. That's too much for me. So, and I need to prove that I can do something else. Mm -hmm. And so you have this very diverse career in the public service. And this morning, one of the things that you, you were asked about on the panel was this question of challenging stereotypes and dealing with misconceptions and discrimination. And you bring such an interesting perspective because you're thinking about this in terms of your lived experience, but you've also been a public servant. So how do you marry the attitudinal change component to effective public policy? Attitude is everything. You can build ramps, you can build accessible technology, you can create large print versions of documents, you can do all kinds of things. If the attitude, if the mindset that recognizes that people are people, that they have potential, that they have skills, is not there, then it's going to be very difficult. So Public policy plays an immense role in changing attitudes. It, you know, a, a law, an act in and of itself or a strategy isn't going to change attitudes. But what it does is it puts it out there. It, it, it recognizes the importance of it and it sets out uh, some obligations. Sometimes it, that's where it has to start. You know, if you didn't have to stop at the red light with, in, with your car, would you stop? It's a good question, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's why we need laws and that's why we need public policies and that's why we need uh, strategies. I think the difference this time, and I really believe in this, is nothing without us. Mm -hmm. um, it is that we are finally, you know, this was start, was recognized in the women's movement a long time ago, for example. And we're starting to, to see that people are understanding that you don't do things for people with disabilities. You do things with people with disabilities. Let's, let's sort of expand on that a little bit because I think the phrase, nothing about us without us, is familiar to a lot of us. And that, of course, means that when you're having conversations with people with disabilities, you should, of course, involve people with disabilities in that conversation. But Carla Qualtro wanted us to do better and said that with one in five Canadians living with a disability, we've got to start taking disability into consideration when we look at all aspects of public life and public policy. So let's turn our attention to the law, which is the Accessible Canada Act. I'm sure you were excited, as was I, as was everybody. So how does the Accessible Canada Act evolve in the next couple of years? Uh, what are some of the standards that they're creating and what role do you see yourself playing and what role is your office going to play? So the Accessible Canada Act um, 
is now framework legislation. So it sets out a number of obligations for federally regulated entities. The question is, how are we going to carry out those obligations? This is where our strategy for the federal public service comes in. This is where the regulations that are going to support the legislation come in. This is where... um, you'll see standards developed with the new standards development uh, organization in the area of accessibility that has recently or is in the process of changing its name, uh, but it was known as the Canadian Accessibility Standards Development Organization. Mm -hmm. That's where these things come in. So as we see these things evolve, it will create uh, the, the, the environment and the, the, uh, the, the conditions uh, for uh, people with disabilities to uh, be able to uh, to participate and to be uh, part of society like anybody else. A big component of effective participation is employment and labor force participation. And you know from being at this event with me that we've explored the issue of employment and the abysmal rates of employment quite thoroughly this morning. Uh, you also heard the Deputy Minister talk about the federal government intending to hire close to 5,000 people with disabilities to, uh, who self-identify as having a disability. So how do you think about changing the culture so that we bake in some of those supports for employment and so that it's not about changing, uh, it's not about accommodating individuals, but changing the culture? Um, it's about changing the culture. It's about changing the environment. And then the the smallest piece of this work should become accommodating individuals. Because if you think about it, if you create an environment, a workspace that is accessible and inclusive, then the need for individual accommodation and for individual special, whatever it is, measures or tools or or gadgets or whatnot, that gets reduced uh, because, for example, you know the the example that was being given about the iPhone. If you mm-hmm. think about the iPhone, uh, all anybody can use an iPhone uh, because it has built in. Uh, the 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 different alternatives or the different assistive uh, technology that one person could need in order to use that iPhone. That's the kind of environment that we need to create, and that's at the heart of improving employment. Um, people, know, you know, having to self-identify. A lot of people, if they have a choice, they prefer not to mm-hmm. because that triggers the fear, the stigma, the exclusion. And, you know, it's not that people are are mean or or ill-intentioned. I think it's about not knowing. It's about, you know, not understanding what, and and not appreciating what diversity of people and of perspectives can bring. So I I think that really to, to resolve the employment issue, we really need to work on making that environment more accessible and more inclusive. You touched briefly on privacy, which is something the panel that dealt with living with vision loss gets into. But the other word that cropped up that really piqued my interest was interdependence. And this idea that no one is really independent. If you stop to think about it, we don't all make our own clothes or grow our own food. So when we think about accessibility in terms of interdependence and universality, what is it that we're really saying to Canadians about the society that we all, irrespective of ability, want to live in? 
I think the first thing we need to say is we all have a role. We all have a role in improving accessibility and in making the world more inclusive. And, and you know, the most fundamental things that people can do is talk to people with disability. Don't turn around just because you think that somebody is different from you. Talk, try to understand, try to understand where, where their perspective, because their perspective can add something to your life as well. Well, Luna, we've just got a minute left, but just before I let you go, we're at this really significant conference in Ottawa. It's the Canadian Vision 2020 Summit. And what it's done is brought a lot of stakeholders together in the same room. How are you feeling about your participation and where do you think we're going to go from here? I think it's a wonderful event. Um, I uh, working in uh, the area of accessibility. Um, we tend to work in the area of okay, how can we make life now um, more uh, open, more inclusive for people with disabilities? What this event has, the dimension this event has added, is the dimension of research, of hope uh, for a better future, and. It's not that, as, as Louise Gillis really said, having a vision loss is not a tragedy, but being able to see would be great. So that's what these people bring. And it's amazing to be able uh, to bring these two realities together. Luna, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank it's been you. a pleasure speaking thank to you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Luna Vengio, the principal advisor to the deputy minister, for Office of Public Service Accessibility at the Treasury Board Secretariat. Luna was a panelist on the second panel of the day, which focused on living with vision loss. That is the wrap-up to day two of our coverage at the Vision 2020 Summit. It was a fascinating day because it brought together so many different stakeholders that don't normally interact with each other. And I think as someone who's really passionate about research and statistics, I really enjoyed hearing from Stuart Morris, but really found my conversation with Luna, Luna Bengio to be particularly valuable. Her insight into interdependence for people of all abilities is perhaps my key takeaway. If you want to go back and listen to some of our conversations, you can certainly find us on your favorite podcast platform or head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse, where you can hear some of my reflections on the programs, as well as on some of the panelists and the speakers. I want to thank our guests on The Pulse today, Luna Vengio, of course, and Stuart Morris from the first half of the program. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanroll. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio. But most of all, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be a part of the conversation. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI, and let us know what you think about the conference and the panelists that we had a chance to sit down with. You've been listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Joita Gupta. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.